Hello and welcome to Truth Talks, brought to you by South African author, theologian and church leader, Dr. Christopher Pepler. Hello everybody, welcome to another episode of the Captivated by Jesus series. This time, it's his amazing wisdom, Jesus's amazing wisdom. The Lord Jesus possessed great powers of insight, and I'm constantly arrested by his amazing wisdom. The wisdom he displayed was far beyond normal common sense and sagacity, and I can only equate it to the gift of wisdom of which Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 and 14. Now, the dictionary definition of wisdom is that it is a combination of good judgment, knowledge, and experience. But Jesus' wisdom goes far deeper than this. The biblical references to wisdom take it into the realm of life application, where wise people are described as those who apply God's revealed viewpoint to daily life. Jesus displayed this, but so much more. Perhaps a better definition of the wisdom Jesus possessed is supernatural insight applied perfectly to life situations. The best way I can illustrate this and explain why his wisdom amazes me so is to give a couple of examples. First example is about the paying of taxes. Matthew chapter 22 verses 15 through 22 records the story of how some Pharisees tried to trap Jesus. They came to him and after flattering him, buttering him up, you know, they asked, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? You see, they figured that if Jesus answered that it was right to pay taxes to Caesar, then they could accuse him of being a lackey to Rome and a traitor to the Jewish people. And if he said that it was not right for the Jew to pay taxes to Rome, then they would turn him into the authorities as an insurrectionist. <laughs> they thought they had him between a Roman rock and a Jewish hard place. Now Jesus did not answer directly, but instead he asked them to show him the coin that was used to pay the Roman tax. They produced a denarius, a coin that bore the head of Caesar on one side. And then he addressed them with these words. Whose portrait is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Now, the first part of his instruction to them is really easy to understand. The coin was minted by Caesar as a means of paying tax, and it bore his image and inscription of ownership. So to give a denarius to Rome as payment of tax was simply giving back to Caesar what was really his. And in another sense, it was legitimately due to Caesar because Rome provided law and order, military protection, and so on. So they were due taxes. The second part of the statement, however, is harder to understand without the benefit of a little biblical context. The basis of what Jesus said concerning giving to God what was his is found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Now this verse reads, then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So, you see, humankind bears the very image of God, not the image of Caesar. And all people belong to God and not to Rome or the Roman emperor. 
So an amplification of what Jesus said would then be, give your tax money to Caesar, but give yourselves to God. The account in Matthew's Gospel concludes with the words, When they heard this, they were amazed, and we should be amazed too, because Jesus' response was sublime and irrefutable. However, you know, when I dig deeper into this passage of Scripture, I become even more amazed by the Lord's overall handling of the situation. Just consider the following. Jesus knew from the very start what the Pharisees were trying to do, and he let them know this by saying, You hypocrites! Why are you trying to trap me? He knew they were trying to trap him. And having called them out, he refused to enter into a debate with them on the validity of taxes, citizen obligations, Jewish religious laws, and so on. Then in his short response, he incorporated another layer of meaning. You see, the Jewish temple tax was paid using the sacred shekel, and this coin bore no human image of inscription of ownership. So a second meaning of what Jesus said could have been, pay your taxes to Caesar with the denarius, but pay your temple tax with the sacred shekel. And the Pharisees would not have been able to find fault with his ruling. And Jesus laid them out with a straight right of truth, followed by a left hook of wisdom. No wonder Jesus' accusers were astounded by his wisdom, and they could only walk away. That's amazing. A second example of Jesus' amazing wisdom also involves a situation where the Pharisees were once again trying to trap him. They brought to him a woman caught in the act of adultery, with the idea of testing his adherence to the law of Moses that commanded that an adulterous woman should be stoned to death. John 8 verses 1 to 11 records the story and starts with the Pharisees' words to Jesus. Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? <laughs> they were using this question as a trap to have a basis for accusing him. Now, as in the previous case, Jesus did not respond immediately, but instead he bent down and wrote something in the dust with his finger. The Pharisees kept on throwing questions at him, and he responded with the words, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to cast the first stone at him. And then he, he continued to write in the dust. Now look, no one knows for sure just what Jesus wrote. It's not disclosed. But it must have been appropriate to the matter at hand, Clearly, it must have been short and easy to read him. He's writing with his finger in the dust. And it must have resonated with his adversaries. They must have understood it and understood its meaning and import. So consider this. Leviticus 20 verse 10 instructs that the man and the woman involved in adultery must be stoned. But where was the man here? Where was the man? They caught the two in the very act of adultery, yet they did not present the man to Jesus for judgment. Why? Perhaps, you see, they had set the whole thing up with the man's help and were willing to sacrifice her but not him for the sake of their wicked scheme. Now, but no matter what their motive actually was, what's clear is that they themselves were in violation of the law of Moses by not bringing the man 
They were violating the very law that they were trying to trap him in. Secondly, Roman law only allowed for the execution of a woman caught in adultery if the involved man was also executed. Struck two, the Pharisees were also violating Roman law and could be severely punished for this. So then, given all this, what might Jesus have been writing in the dust with his finger, do you think? And whatever it was, it had the power to convict not the woman, but her accusers. It must have also been something that they readily recognized and knew that it applied to them. My educated guess is that perhaps Jesus wrote three Hebrew letters that formed the word tekel. See, this word means weighed, and it featured in a very well-known and dramatic story from Israel's history. The story is told in the book of Daniel chapter 5, where the finger of God appeared and wrote on the wall of King Nebuchadnezzar, on his palace wall in the banqueting hall. The prophet Daniel was summoned to tell the king what these words meant, and he interpreted the word tekel to mean you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. <laughs> what an indictment to these Pharisees standing before him. Now here, before this group of men, at another time, long, long ago after that, God in human flesh again wrote. He wrote in the dust this time with his finger. He wrote what he had been written some 500 years earlier. And surely the Pharisees would have been aware of the historical significance and they couldn't have failed to grasp its application to themselves. When I first recognized that this was probably the fuller meaning of what John recorded, I was overwhelmed with wonder at the amazing wisdom of the Lord Jesus. He turned both the law of Moses and the law of Rome around to point directly at his accusers. He did this with both, both spoken words and a written word they immediately recognized and understood. And as the realization dawned in their minds, Jesus challenged one of them, any one of them, who was without sin to cast the first rock at the woman. What amazing wisdom. Let me give you a personal application now. Now, I've had experience of what Paul described as the spiritual gift of the word of wisdom many times in my Christian life. Most often these words of wisdom come as I'm counseling somebody. I'm listening to someone's life problems that are humanly quite impossible to solve. However, rather than one of these occasions, I want to rather recount a series of events that demonstrated and demonstrated to me and hopefully to you the inadequacy of human wisdom when compared to the sublime wisdom of God. In the early days of Lone Hill Village Church, the community I pastored, a man came to me and asked for advice. He had committed adultery, he said, many years before, but now he was convicted to confess this to his wife. <laughs> Drawing on all my worldly wisdom, I advised him against this. I said, well, you know, why cause your wife pain over something that's so long gone. I mean, this is a selfish thing of yours that you should want to do. Why cause her all this pain? Why risk damaging your marriage? Well, he thanked me profusely and he went off and did just the opposite of what I advised. His wife, when she heard this, had a mini meltdown 
But the next day she came to him to say that his confession had released her to confess to him her own, her own past indiscretions. And from then on, their relationship became deeper and more loving. And a few months later, they came to ask me to be baptized. They wanted to be baptized as a sort of a sacrament for this new beginning in their married life. So I explained the biblical significance of water baptism, but agreed to administer it only to the husband, because he had not previously made this witness in water to his new birth. She was a little distressed because she wanted to be part of it, and so I silently asked the Holy Spirit for a word of wisdom. A solution immediately came to mind, and I suggested that she stand on the edge of the pool, and as I was bringing him up out of the water, she reached out her hands to pray for her husband, to bless him as he came out of the water of baptism. So that's what happened. But as I raised her husband up out of the water, I looked over, and I saw her collapsing in a pile on the concrete poolside. She explained to me afterwards that as she stretched out her hand towards her husband, the Holy Spirit had poured out his blessing on her. She had not been able to stand under the weight of this experience, and it collapsed. So as I baptized the husband in water, the Holy Spirit had simultaneously baptized the wife with power from on high. Not many months later, the husband was diagnosed with terminal cancer and died shortly after that. During that period, they were able to live in rich, guilt-free companionship with one another. And when the time came to say goodbye, the wife was able to draw on God's spiritual anointing to be strong yet compassionate. God is good, you see. And the wisdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, God incarnate, is truly amazing. Now, I lacked wisdom, but he gave me, and he gave that conscience-stricken husband real wisdom from above. And because of that, the couple had been freed from their sense of guilt and shame and had been able to live in harmony during the months leading up to his death. As part of the process, God had given me a gift of wisdom, facilitating a life-imparting double baptism. And I can only say again, the wisdom of Jesus is amazing. I lacked wisdom, but he gave that conscience-stricken husband real wisdom from above. Because of that, the couple had been freed from their sense of guilt and shame and had been able to live in harmony during the months leading up to his death. As part of the process, God had given me a gift of wisdom, facilitating a life-imparting double baptism. And I can only say again, the wisdom of Jesus is amazing. Now, my understanding of the wisdom that God gives those who ask is, as Lawrence Richards, the theologian, puts it, the divine perspective available to and applied by believers to the issues of their lives. However, in using the word to describe a gift of the Spirit, in 1 Corinthians 12.8, Paul extends the range of wisdom beyond a believer's own life to the lives of others. You see, counselors give gifts of wisdom to those who come to them, not just in what they say from the basis of their learning and experience, but more particularly when they cry out and receive from the Holy Spirit his wisdom, that gift of wisdom.
Preachers impart divine wisdom when they speak out applications of biblical truth as the Spirit leads and enables them. Divine wisdom can be imparted to Christians and non-Christians alike and can be dispensed in a church service or any secular setting. Whatever the context and the place, the response should always be amazement and a sense of the presence of the One in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, the Lord Jesus Christ. God bless you. Until the next in our series, Captivated by Jesus. Thank you for listening to Truth Talks from Truth is the Word Ministry. If you'd like to share your views, read up on related topics, or purchase one of Dr. Pepler's books, please visit his blog on truthistheword.com. And remember, truth is